Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome back. Welcome back to the uh, probably the only church history podcast that uh, has the chance of a three-year-old dropping in at any given moment. Um, we are delving into one of the coolest uh, aspects of church history, and that is when you finally get up to a section of church history that might be familiar. And uh, for those of you who are uh, or consider yourself kind of in the more evangelical camp or fundamentalist camp or, um, you know, live in the United States and have paid attention to anything over the past, you know, 30, 40 years, uh, you're going to find a lot of things tonight quite familiar and uh, probably be able to connect some of the history with, um, with all that's going to be going on uh, in the um, in the discussion tonight. So uh, if you can see from the uh, descriptions here, evangelicals and evangelicalism, uh, really important, uh, really important topic and one that uh, hopefully can be quite clarifying for a number of us. Um, I'm going to go ahead and turn off my fan because I think that that is noisy. Indeed. All right. So tonight, um, there's a reason why I wanted to delve into this kind of as a whole. It's because usually aspects about evangelicalism or the evangelical church uh, or even just the evangelical movement as a whole usually gets talked about in passing, but it never really gets defined very well. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of those will come really clear tonight. And um, I think a lot of times we try to define the past and how it did things by current definitions. You can't do that with evangelicalism. Uh, the current definition of, of evangelical and what that means in 2023 is very, very, very different than what it meant even 20 years ago, and certainly 30, and certainly 40 years ago. So these these are not hard and fast definitions. We're not going to actually be solidifying a definition of evangelicalism. Um, there's a reason for that. One is that all of this um, as far as this is concerned, has happened in the past hundred years, which is technically no longer history. Um, it is uh, very recent events. History has to be sifted through the uh, the time uh, long enough for people to gain some perspective on it. Uh, right now, obviously, evangelicalism, very new in the history of the church, uh, still something that we're trying to gain perspective on. Um, there's current talk uh, right now, uh, going on about whether the concept of evangelicalism as a term is even helpful anymore. Um, and so that, that itself may be coming to an end. Um, I would fall into that camp of, of thinking that we have actually, um, gone into a time period where that term and that concept is now, uh, in the past, but we will really only know as we go forward several more decades, um, whether or not that's the case. That's kind of how history works. Um, you know, everyone everyone who's living in World War I thought that that was the war to end all wars, uh, the Great War, all of that kind of stuff. It's very hard to see the ramifications of your current events uh, until you pass through several decades of digestion and consideration. Um, and nobody calls World War I that anymore. In fact, we just gave it the single number because of how significant the second one was. And uh, hopefully not a third, but uh, time will tell. Okay, tonight, evangelicals and evangelicalism. Now, again, there's a reason why I'm going to refer to both of these. 
Uh, and that is that there are people, there are leaders that we can refer to as evangelicals. And then there's a movement called evangelicalism. Um, you're not going to find me talking about this as a denomination because this, like charismatic movement, um, is, is all throughout multiple denominations. And you will have denominations that come out, you know, the evangelical Presbyterian church, or you will have um, churches like the one I grew up in was literally called an evangelical church. Uh, you'll have the evangelical free church. You'll have those that you'll use that term in a more official capacity, but I'm looking to speak about it on the whole. What in the world does all of this mean? Where does it come from? Obviously, if you know Greek, you know that the word evangelical comes from the Greek word in the New Testament for gospel, euangelion. It literally means good news. Um, and so you would imagine that um, evangelism or being evangelists is a huge part of it. it certainly is. Um, but so it, it's a dicey term because the term is as old as the Protestant Reformation. Uh, you'll have Luther even referring to, uh, in German, the Evangelische Kirche. Uh, that's the, the evangelical church, uh, you know, and he refers to it over and against any church that's called Catholic. Uh, and so, uh, evangelical had to do with this idea of holding up scriptures above tradition, which is the only thing that unifies all Protestants. Um, if you ever wondered what a definition of a Protestant modern day is, that's that's about the only unifying characteristic. We hold scripture above our tradition. Um, now, that doesn't mean we necessarily have a high view of our scriptures. Uh, we can have a very low view of scripture and then have an even lower view of our tradition. Um, or we can have a very high view of uh, scripture and also an almost as high view of our tradition. But Scripture over tradition is pretty much the unifying characteristic of all Protestants. Um, and as far as for the term evangelical, that that concept goes all the way back to the beginning of the Reformation, even in the writings of Luther. But that's not the movement I'm talking about. Obviously, I'm just saying the term is difficult because it just meant originally those that held the scriptures as defining the gospel um, even if it was, and especially if it was over and against tradition. Um, but when we're talking about 20th century evangelicalism, or honestly, even 19th century evangelicalism, which is kind of a terminology that I'm not going to be using, um, what we're really focusing on is a particular set of movements in the United States. Uh, in America, there were several movements uh, that were part of what we have already discussed in the Great Awakenings. These are evangelical movements, um, but evangelicalism, rightly called, doesn't really come out of that directly. It's just very influenced by the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, especially the Second Great Awakening. Um, and it's, it's kind of one of those uh, expressions that um, really helps for some clarity. And so what we're going to attempt to do uh, is to draw some of that clarity tonight. Um, and the first point of order is to draw a, uh, a line around the definition of evangelicalism. Because in the modern day, and when I say modern day, I, I literally mean the past 40 years or so, the, the overlap of evangelicals and fundamentalists have has led to a lot of muddying of the waters of clarity. And so I want to try to separate those terms out a little bit for us tonight. And then 
towards the end tonight, I'm going to bring them right back together because this is kind of one of the realities of church history is it's very messy. Um, so let's kind of start with the early 20th century. Um, the early 20th century, we've already discussed the church's reactions to modernity. One of them was to reject modernity out of hand um, as far as for a theological idea. Uh, the idea that we can uh, use the scientific method or uh, to reject miracles in the scriptures or any such things obviously will challenge preconceptions about how Christianity itself works. And so if we're going to be rejecting scripture or the virgin birth or um, or uh, Christ's atonement working in a certain way or the bodily resurrection of Jesus because we can't you know, uh, repeat that, we can't test that, we can't uh, make a hypothesis about it that's confirmation worthy, um, those types of things using the scientific method, people were bringing that straight into uh, straight into theology. Uh, a lot of people were. And this was happening not only in the theological world, it was happening in the philosophical world, massively so. Uh, we've talked about that at length. Um, and the reactions to that, some of them were just straight up a rejection of those things. Um, and in the earlier days, a lot of it was just a straight up rejection. Uh, and it, it formed early on in late 1910s, early 1920s, uh, what became known as the fundamentalist movement. This is not the movement we're discussing tonight, but I need to make some clarities here. Um, the fundamentalists were all about the theological arguments of these things. And then establishing that in the culture. Now, there's a reason why a lot of people mix this up with the evangelical movement, which we'll discuss in a second. Uh, it's because there's a lot of overlap, at least in those areas. But the fundamentalist movement kind of, uh, while there was overlap with what becomes the evangelical movement, the reality was that the fundamentalist movement tried to take itself uh, into politics pretty quick and then it burned itself out really quick. And then it kind of played a whole nother role during um, during the intervening years, World War II and so forth. Fundamentalism is not going to be a huge uh, subject for me, not because I don't like talking about it. I, it's fine to talk about. The problem is it it's becoming a much smaller area of effect in church history than the evangelical movement is. So, but I hear I'm just trying to define out some of these things. Um, in early evangelicalism as opposed to uh, fundamentalism. So fundamentalism really in the earliest years becomes defined by what it's not. Uh, it's not going to be modernist. It is not going to be uh, allowing things like evolution uh, to be taught in the schools. This is where the scopes monkey trial and all this kind of stuff. That's, that's all fundamentalist uh, things. Um, it's, it's not going to allow definitions um, and I would agree uh, just on the basis of these fundamentals. Uh, it's not going to allow the rejection of scripture uh, or the infallibility of scripture. It's not going to allow for redefinition of the virgin birth of Jesus. It's not going to allow for um, seeing Christ's death as something other than atonement for sin only. Uh, it's not going to allow for things like this. And it, it really burns itself out a lot on things that it stands against. And not all things were just straight up um, theological issues, though some were trying to make that. There was a lot of uh, other issues, societally speaking, that fundamentalism was 
resisting. Uh, fundamentalism had a real hard time with uh, changing uh, as far as for culture was concerned and the role of fundamentalists in the civil rights era, for instance, was a, uh, a lamentable one uh, to say the least. Um, but I do want to point out um, that with evangelicalism, some of what we're looking at here tonight uh, really has to do with trying to distance itself from fundamentalists while still holding to the theological position. So this is where kind of this switch comes in. Um, when, when we talk about early on evangelicalism, and I'm talking 1920s, when we're talking about early on evangelicalism, what we are talking about is a group of learned pastors who found themselves in agreement with the theological concepts of fundamentalism, but did not appreciate and did not want to support the anti-intellectualism that was endemic to the fundamentalist movement. Let me kind of explain that out just a little bit. One of the, one of the uh, issues of the fundamentalist movement in the early evangelicals mind was that a lot of what they were rejecting was based out of an anti-scholasticism, this, this concept of, of too much learning. You're, you've gone to this school, you've gone to this seminary, and you got your mind all messed up uh, with this. And again, this is really early on, 1920s and so. This is, you're dealing with things like Princeton, you're dealing with things like Harvard, and these things starting to cave uh, in, in the fundamentalist and even in the evangelical's mind on really core Christian doctrines, right? You, you can't set aside uh, the authority and inspiration of scripture lightly. You cannot set aside the virgin birth of Jesus lightly. These are not these are not pittances. These are not minor issues. These are significant issues. Uh, the historical reality of miracles of Jesus is not a small issue. That is very central stuff. Uh, it has to do with his resurrection. It has to do with his words being authoritative, uh, inspiration of scripture, all of these things, right? And so one of the first reactions against a lot of this rejection is the fundamentalists and the evangelicals, the earliest evangelicals come in and say, look, that's, that can't be our only answer. We can't just reject these things and say, ah, too much book learning. You just need to read the Bible and that's all and good. Um, while that has its place, uh, the early evangelicals um, were, were, I mean, you would get sermons that literally had uh, subjects, uh, or literally had titles of shall the fundamentalists win? Um, you know, and, and this idea that, look, if we're going to reject modernity, let's do it right. Let's do it through good schooling rather than just complaining that intellectualism is causing disbelief. How about let's actually educate our people well? And so there was a huge push for good seminary training, not just to avoid seminary training, but a huge push to a rigorous, uh, thoughtful, uh, orthodox training for pastors, for theologians, and yes, even for Christian philosophers. And a lot of this really attempted to uh, respond early on to the fundamentalist, what was perceived as overreaction, uh, against all kinds of intellectual pursuits and um, and the the production of of journals and literature and things like this um, and all of the all of the issues that came in with um, with archaeology with um, 
with philosophical concepts, even when it comes down to the fact that theologians were finding themselves having to answer challenges from almost every field. You have a geologist. Now we have to study rocks, right? Theologians never had to deal with this kind of stuff, at least not on this level and this fast. And so one of the evangelical points was we can't just ignore it. We have to actually answer it somehow. Um, we want to ensure that we are, um, it is clear that we are not anti-intellectual, and that's going to be one of the defining characteristics of evangelicalism over and against the fundamentalist movement. Fundamentalist movement wouldn't uh, have any issue in the early years saying, look, this has nothing to do with, uh, you know, try to get the right learning or to go to the right schools. This is just, we just need the Bible and nothing else, and that's kind of the end of it. Uh, evangelicalism will say, look, yes, we have the Bible, and that is high, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, and we we fully hold to the inspiration of it, virgin birth of Jesus, all, all these fundamental things, but we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And maybe that's probably the easiest way to put that with regards to evangelicalism. Now, that kind of developed a bit, but didn't go many places in the 20s and 30s. Obviously, the 20s and 30s had many of their own concerns to deal with. Uh, the 20s had huge economic booms, and earlier parts of um, of evangelicalism and fundamentalism were kind of, you know, hashing it out from pulpit to pulpit. But in the 30s, you were dealing with the real practical effects and difficulties that come with the Great Depression and uh, and all the other cultural issues with that. Not many people going around going, hey, I got an idea. You know, let's sit down and have extensive theological debates while we've got problems brewing over in Europe again, while we've got massive financial troubles and people starving. Uh, this kind of stuff doesn't really develop hugely during uh, issues like that. It's really more in trying to deal with the aspects afterwards. And that kind of brings us to um, the 1940s, which is really where we're going to pick up this evening. The 1940s and the the uh, occurrence of World War II and the aftermath of that with regards to a, a burgeoning nation and then Christians inside that nation wondering exactly what role we play inside that nation. This is really where the evangelical movement uh, launches off. And now there's there's some that will refer to this actually as the neo-evangelical movement. That that's that's a fine term, I suppose. Um, problem is, is that kind of assumes a much more significant movement before that. Um, you know, with regards to like the fundamentalist modernist controversies and the first and second great awakenings. I don't usually refer to this as neo-evangelicalism, but if you're going to do any reading in this, uh, know that that term uh, is going to apply really to post-World War II. Um, but I am going to simply refer to that as evangelicalism proper. Um, one, because it is the most significant of the movements with regards to the movement at all. Most of the other stuff can, I think, healthfully see, be seen as uh, as leading up to it. Um, I, there's some people that trace the evangelical movement all the way back to the first great awakening in the 1700s. I do not do that. It was certainly influenced by that. Um, but I mean, if you're going to go all the way back there to the first great awakening or even to pietism in, in low country Germany, which some people do as well, then you're going to have to go all the way back to the Puritans back before that. Because at the heart of it, 
evangelicalism is is a lot of Puritan theology and and pietistic practice and view of worship and culture, trying to live together in this heterogeneous concept of how the Christian life is to be lived. Um, and so I, I really, if you start tracing that back, I really don't know where you stop. If you're going to go back to the first great awakening, I don't know how you don't find yourself all the way back in England in the 1500s, uh, with the, with the, uh, beginning points of the Puritan movement. So, um, I draw the line for basic evangelicalism, um, right around world war II. So that's how I'm going to talk about it. Uh, I'm certainly willing to be proven wrong on that, but I haven't seen a decent enough uh, set of arguments elsewise. Um, and so if we're going to talk about that, then the major person that we're going to have to start paying attention to is a man named Harold John Ockengay. Harold John Ockengay. Uh, that last name is spelled O-C-K-E-N-G-A. Ockengay. If you are studying the evangelical movement and you don't learn about Harold J John Ockengay, you are going to come up uh, very confused, uh, or certainly with about half of the foundings of all of this uh, without without uh, grounding. Um, he is not a small figure on the uh, evangelical or neo-evangelical movement, as some call to it. Um, and that is because he is so central in the founding of multiple enterprises that developed the evangelical uh, movement into what it became. Um, the, he was the pastor of Park Street Church in Boston, Massachusetts, a church I actually know and have been to. Um, went to school with the current organist there, actually knew personally, which is always fun. Um, and... Uh, he was the co-founder of uh, the National Association of Evangelicals. That was in 1942. Uh, the co-founder of the National Association of Evangelicals, 1942. That would be the first real full-on, uh, real full-on evangelical movement moved into official category, if you will. And that's kind of why I put this as the beginning of that movement, at least in the uh, in the organized stance. Uh, Harold J. Ockengate, uh, pastor there at Park Street Church in, in Boston, Massachusetts, he um, was was instrumental in this because one of the things he wanted to ensure was that if, if there's going to be a biblical response to modernity, it's going to happen in the, uh, in the headspace of the intellectual world. Uh, it's not going to be just in the rejection of it inside a church's walls. Uh, we must take the fight straight to the lectern. It can't just be in the pulpits. Uh, this will be kind of how he looks at this. He's not going to do it instead of the pulpits. He's going to do it in both. Um, he's going to be a pastor while doing a lot of what we're about to talk about. Um, uh, he's the co-founder of the National Association of Evangelicals in 1942. He also aided in co-founding and establishing Fuller Seminary in California. Um, Fuller Seminary in California was... Uh, started out as a very evangelical seminary. And these days it is not, but that we'll talk about this a little bit more later of what's happened to the evangelical movement. Um, but he aided in establishing Fuller Seminary in California as, as to be a place for evangelical uh, Christians to be trained uh, deeply in how to engage our culture and our culture's questions 
from a Christian worldview uh, in in very very advanced theological answers, advanced theological considerations. Uh, this would not be responding with a sermon. This would be responding on the turf of uh, of those who have advanced degrees, for instance. And so you will have the establishment of not only Fuller Seminary, um, you will also uh, try to address this on the popular level as well. Uh, and that was that uh, Harold J. Ockengay also co-founded the um, the magazine Christianity Today in 1956. And you may recognize one of the names of, of one of the guys he founded it with, and that is Billy Graham and Carl F.H. Henry, both of which uh, aided Harold Ockengay in founding Christianity Today. Um, and uh, Carl F.H. Henry did play an outsized role in that as well. He was the first editor-in-chief. Uh, Harold Ockengay and Billy Graham also co-founding that, writing articles for it, uh, attempting to offer to the world a, a good intellectual response to the modernist challenge, not only of liberal theology, but of uh, but specifically of progressivism itself uh, with regards to Christian theology and even, even inside the, the rest of uh, the cultural push for these things. Uh, not to be outdone by his own success, Harold Ockengay also founded Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in 1969. Um, the undergraduate school of which is my alma mater, Gordon uh, College, where I went for my first graduate, uh, for my first undergraduate degree. Um, and Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary was uh, combining two existing theological schools. One was Gordon and one was Conwell and brought them both together. Uh, and he served as the new seminary's first president for the first 10 years from 1969 to 1979. Um, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary was the place where um, for so now we have two. We have one Fuller Seminary on the West Coast. We have Gordon Conwell Seminary on the East Coast. These were going to be the seminaries that that addressed the evangelical intellectual pursuit, right? Uh, one of them, I would say, has lived up to that. The other one has uh, has not, um, which is which is fascinating. Actually, one might say both of them are indicative of the evangelical movement and the fact that there's so much multiplicity inside of it. Um, but nevertheless, um, Harold Ockengay served as Gordon Conwell's Theological uh, Seminary's president uh, until 1979, so the first 10 years of its existence. Um, and the idea behind that seminary specifically was to not set aside our Christian theological roots, um, but we're not going to embrace a simplistic, you know, anti-modernist stance on issues. We're going to give a robust theological response uh, to the modern world that we live in. Um, just as a side note, uh, he was able to financially combine those two schools um, because of a very generous gift by Nam, a man named J. Howard Pugh, P-E-W. Uh, -E uh, he was a devout Presbyterian uh, additionally, he had become involved in a lot of philanthropic endeavors after his retirement as president of a little oil company you know of as Sunoco. Um, he was a devout Presbyterian who was the president of Sunoco, what, what is now Sunoco. You should be just Sun Oil Company. Um, oh, and if you've ever heard of the Pew Research Center uh, that conducts all of those uh, uh, all of those polls and so forth, that's that's also his foundation as well. Uh, so all of that kind of intertwines. There's a lot of 
there's a lot of overlap between uh, philanthropy and theology and in culture and um, and things like this uh, in, in, in expression to how those things moved on. Um, and this, this kind of speaks to us of, of kind of the world that evangelicalism is seeking to establish itself in. Um, you have these desires to establish um, evangelicalism as, as a robust answer to these things, but then there's, there's not just an intellectual side of these things. In the evangelical movement, you have a multiplicity of approaches to just about everything, um, but you will get uh, parts of this that aren't coming from, you know, the, the intellectual side of that, which would be the kind of, you know, Fuller Seminary, Gordon Conwell, you know, National Association of Evangelical side of things, Christianity today, at least its first several decades, um, trying to address these things or publish peer-reviewed articles or things like this, you'll have a whole other side of the evangelical movement that's going to focus on uh, classic aspects of of the Great Awakenings, for instance, which would be the uh, a recommitment to revivals and uh, and missions. Um, there's some people that have called the evangelical movement kind of a fourth Great Awakening after the holiness movements of uh, of of the third Great Awakening that some people again call that. Um, it's really hard to start drawing lines like that, uh, but the reality is evangelicalism uh, really had not just a recommitment to the intellectual pursuits that should be a part of the Christian uh, experience, but also a recommitment to revivals and to missions. Uh, you will get things like Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, founded in 1951 as part of this movement. Um, that is founded in no other place than UCLA. Uh, you have Evangelism Explosion. Uh, again, it is founded after a book, a 1962 book by D. James Kennedy, bearing the same name, Evangelism Explosion, right? So you, you, you're, seeing, you're seeing one of the commitments to the nature of the gospel uh, kind of living itself out in this. Uh, evangelism explosion, you know, really popularized its kind of two-pronged approach to interviewing somebody. You know, this concept of where will you go when you die? Um, and then the follow-up question, suppose then you die today and stand before God, he asks you, why, why, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? Um, you know, you'll get uh, you'll get overlap be between certain aspects of the evangelical movement. You know, you get Billy Graham that's involved in uh, in founding Christianity today on kind of more of the theological side of things. But then on the more missions side of things, you will have him joining up with uh, with South African theologian John Stott in the Lausanne movement of 1974. Which, if you again, I'm trying to list out as many of these things. So if you want to do more reading about this. Uh, you can. So the Lausanne movement, uh, L-A-U-S-A-N-N-E, -N -N -E. the Lausanne movement in 1974 was this push to organize worldwide missions. This idea that we can have church leaders uh, represented from most countries trying to come together to reach, quote unquote, the whole church taking the whole gospel to the whole world, unquote. The purpose was to promote unity, strategic, you know, working together among Christians around the world to fulfill the Great Commission. This idea of trying to organize worldwide missions. This is all part of the evangelical movement. This this uh, this recommitment to uh, this revivalist missionary 
concept and conquest of the world. Um, you know, when the when the Lausanne Covenant, uh, or excuse me, when the Lausanne movement joined together in 1974, they released the Lausanne Covenant, uh, a document that expressed you know a lot of shared beliefs among evangelicals inside the evangelical movement and their commitment to sharing the gospel, whether that's in revivals, whether that's in uh, crusades. You can even hear it in the way, obviously, the Billy Graham crusades. Um, you know, something that you know even his. Uh, his son Franklin Graham today still involved in the evangelical movement, uh, huge figure in it. Um, these types of things all come out of this idea of we want a robust response to the modern world in which we live. Um, you will get you will get uh, a recommitment not only to revival and missions, and that that is a huge thing. So you'll have massive crusades that come through. Um, and, and, and people going up and, and you would be, you would be, uh, you would be excused or even, uh, you know, forgiven to, to look at a Billy Graham crusade, for instance, and not see, uh, that there's, there's a lot of overlap between that and the first, second great awakening and between that and some of the holiness movements. Now, obviously the, the effect of those things is different. The, the look of it is different, but there's still behind it this idea that has been in this country since the very beginning, this idea of the necessity of revival in a modern world. Um, and whether that means that somebody becomes a Christian or whether that means somebody is rededicating their life or whether that means uh, whatever it means, uh, that this kind of way of doing things is is almost as american as as um i don't know as as rejecting a sovereign king uh it, it's kind of just in the dna of this country and so when a when an entire movement like the evangelical movement arises uh inside america it's going to feel very american and and this is kind of one of those now Again, that doesn't mean it doesn't have worldwide implications, especially after World War II. Anything that happens in America immediately goes out to the whole world, uh, for better or worse. And so, uh, the Lausanne movement is one of those uh, one of those mid seventies things where the evangelical movement in the United States uh, has ramifications for uh, missions worldwide. But there wasn't just a recommitment to revivals and missionary endeavors. There was a recommitment to the mind. Uh, not only in things like Christianity Today, which uh, we've already discussed, but there is um, there is another really more influential writer, a Christian philosopher named Francis Schaeffer, um, someone worth reading, worth uh, familiarizing yourself to, an evangelical theologian, uh, an evangelical philosopher, and a pastor. Um, he is he he writes nearly two dozen books. Uh, you know, with titles like uh, How Should We Then Live or The God Who Is There. Uh, his whole purpose was attempting to relate the historic Christian way of thinking and of digesting issues uh, to cultural issues today. Um, obviously, things like this will, will lead people to consider a, a very significant pro-life stance. Obviously, we're talking in the mid-70s. Uh, and 80s, you're you're going to see that 
largely overlap with what's been going on uh, in in other areas of of politics and of thinking uh, and the uh, and the push in these things. That recommitment to the mind again, one of the massive aspects that will separate it out from the fundamentalist movement um, is that push for it. You can actually, uh, if you want to read more uh, about that, Mark Knoll uh, wrote a really good book uh, on on this kind of topic. It's called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Uh, not the easiest read, but certainly worth uh, certainly worth uh, clarifying some of these things. If you wanted to get a really huge overview of a lot of this kind of stuff, um, oh, goodness, it's a book I read a couple years ago. Hang on a second. Let me pull that title out of my mind. Um, the Democratization of American Christianity. That would be it. Uh, really decent uh, interaction with a lot of these things. Uh, certainly worth looking into. But if you are of any age, about my age and a little bit beyond, you will know and fully understand that the evangelical movement did not stay in the area of theology and revivals and missions and, and Christian philosophy and things like this, but there was a huge recommitment to politics. This is where the common terminology of an evangelical uh, will come from. This is in the 1980s and 1990s. This kind of recommitment to politics. Um, now, this, this is a fascinating thing because while the fundamentalist movement of the 20s uh, was partially involved with uh, society, but merely more as a, a, a pull-out critiquer of it, here you're going to deal with certain aspects and separations inside the evangelical movement that will be viciously political and then others that won't be and so we start to see this kind of dissection inside the evangelical world where you get people on multiple sides of evangelical lines uh, or multiple signs on political lines inside the evangelical movement but then you'll get others that try to withdraw from a lot of that and say, you look, let's, I'm okay in my ivory tower over here. I'm okay uh, on the mission field and, and pulling out of you know politics entirely, but you will have massively influential. Uh, and when I say massively, I mean, to the point of legitimate voting blocks inside America that would be called the evangelical vote. Um, for those of you who are a little bit older than me, I was born in the, 19, uh, the early 1980s. For those of you a little bit older than me, you will remember uh, these things. These aren't. This is kind of church history meeting recent current events type stuff. You'll remember terms like the moral majority. Uh, you'll remember people and figures like Jerry Falwell uh, at his height in the 80s, um, where the being against abortion, being against gay rights, being against feminism, um, uh, being in favor of conservative economic policies, uh, strong national defense. Um, these types of things become synonymous with the evangelical movement in many, many, many people's minds in the 80s and then in the 90s. Um, th this, that whole movement uh, almost single-handedly aligned evangelical Christianity with the Republican Party inside uh, the United States. Uh, and once again, we have the fusion of theology and politics coming to the forefront. Uh, that happens uh, multiple times in church history. This happened again. Um, e even though the, the moral majority uh, as kind of a concept itself officially dissolved in the 80s, 
its overwhelming and lasting effects is still felt today. Um, the 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 usage of theology and theological points to then extrapolate out into the political world uh, is is something that happens over and over and over again in church history. That's just been the most recent part of this. Uh, and so that kind of recommitment to politics uh, coming into the evangelical movement a little bit later on uh, meant that the movement was so large by the time uh, you had people essentially use it for political endeavor. Um, that would be my claim on that. Uh, that means that all of a sudden you have such a huge thing, and especially in the wake of things like Roe v. Wade in the 70s, um, you will get you will get people interacting with politics, thinking that in order to be a good evangelical Christian, you must vote this way and hold this opinion on economics. You must hold this opinion on what the military does. And this, we're not talking about um, you know just war theory or or things like that that have been part of the historical conversation of Christianity. We're talking about you know beliefs about borders and and things like this that the church has never really sat down and talked about uh but all of a sudden it, it's you you know where i was growing up if you were a christian you were a republican that was just kind of the way of it uh that didn't mean that there weren't exceptions to that or anything it just meant that those things were so closely aligned that it was almost unthinkable to not be in that situation. I'm not, again, I'm not making calls on whether that's good or bad or wrong. If you want that, you can take me out to lunch someday. But I will say this is this kind of recommitment to politics does come a little bit later on in the evangelical movement, and it's able to ride the coattails of a huge theological, philosophical, uh, seminary-trained pulpit uh, speaking movement uh, and lectern speaking movement, and uh, immediately during a time of of um, of in the eighties and in the nineties of of financial prosperity, to make it a very simple case to say that our job would be to make use of uh, an overwhelming uh, influence that we have to fix culture. Uh, one way or the other. And I don't want to simplify that, but the problem is, is I can't really extrapolate out massively either because now we're starting to come up to things that are within my lifetime and I'm not that old. Uh, and this is a history class. So, um, you know, we're certainly starting, definitely starting to step on toes somewhere in there and not my really my goal here, just trying to digest it together. Um, admittedly a little bit earlier on than all of that. One of the one of the other issues that the evangelical movement really starts to work through, especially as it comes into the 90s, um, is this idea of what are the boundaries of which we'll work with, right? It's kind of an interesting question. Uh, let's take, for instance, the issue of abortion, which um, evangelical Christians, by and large, are against. Um, and then also Catholics, for instance. So this brings us straight into church history. Uh, the Catholic Church is... Uh, officially thoroughly against abortion as well. The question about something like this is, well, if if they're protesting abortion and they're voting that way, if they are working on uh, lobbying for uh, legislation to this, are, 
and and we're doing that can we just join forces you know what if we what if we disagree about things uh about authority uh the nature of scripture versus tradition or even about the the central aspects of the gospel being by grace alone through faith alone uh and you know and and you know catholics won't hold to that uh in any way the same way that we're talking about but with regards to cultural things are can we can we do things together maybe we can at least for the sake of uh for the uh joint ends that we have maybe we can just join together and figure out how to do that um for those of you old enough to remember again in the 1990s uh the evangelicals and catholics together uh this is in 1994 uh it's uh headed up by a Catholic uh, priest named Richard John Niehaus, and um, and I'm sure a name that a lot of Protestants will recognize, Chuck Colson, uh, coming together to uh, write a document, kind of release a document from that group called the by the same name, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, uh, 1994, uh, which affirmed the shared beliefs that sat between the evangelical movement and the Catholic Church. The Doctrine of the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, you know, the authority of scripture and tradition. That's a little bit of a sticking point. And if you want to kind of just, you know, smooth over the differences there, that's not a small one. Uh, you know, and the importance of evangelism. Uh, obviously, that was the influence of the evangelical movement there. Um, the evangelical and Catholics together, uh, what they published, you know, acknowledged that there were ongoing disagreements between Catholics and evangelicals, obviously. Uh, particularly over issues of church authority, um, issues of the sacraments and what they're doing. Um, but they wanted to commit to pursuing dialogue, not only on those issues, but also, and most importantly, it called co for cooperation on societal issues that we held in common. Things like religious freedom, things like uh, the cultural issues of life, things that head towards life, we can join together and pursue those things together. Um, you know, instead of just being a voting block for evangelicals, maybe we can do evangelicals and Catholics together, which is interesting. Um, and there was actually, there was even more involvement than that, uh, to quote, uh, co-belligerency, unquote. The idea that Christians from different traditions, uh, even those as disparate as evangelical Christians and Catholic Christians, um, can stand together on important social and moral issues, even as they continue to have theological differences. Um, there was a, there was a lot of people, obviously, in both camps that were both excited, and there was a lot of people in both camps that were very angry. Um, you know, there was those who were like, "This is great, we're working towards this." There was those who were looking at that and going, "Hey, this is this is really just smoothing over a lot of the differences that we actually have um, with regards to these things." So it's kind of like an ends justifies the means. Uh, some people would uh, answer back and. Um, so it's it's not a small thing. It certainly didn't fix everything. Nothing ever does, um, you know. But it really speaks to this idea of you know, are there theological limits to the evangelical movement? And that kind of moves us into the most re, uh, the most recent aspects of the evangelical movement. Uh, and one of the reasons why I say the movement itself, or the evangelical movement as a whole, evangelicalism itself. Um, is all but over. Uh, whatever unifying principles there were do seem to have not the defining characteristics anymore uh, of what we're what we're looking at. Um, 
you know, when you have, for instance, a, um, uh, a, a movement that includes people like Tim Keller and Beth Moore and Joel Osteen and John Piper and Rick Warren and Franklin Graham and Al Mohler, all supposedly in the same movement, which all of them supposedly are part of the evangelical movement, one wonders what the benefit of of defining a movement as varied as that is anymore. Um, I I imagine we have we're only seeing kind of the the uh, flickerings out of that movement again. We're talking about history, and we're we're kind of sitting in the middle of that. And what exactly we're dealing with is kind of hard to wrap our minds around. One of the reasons why is that we've had so much of a hard time defining this is when, when we're looking at these things, you kind of look back and go like, yeah, but isn't that just kind of the same as the fundamentalists, right? Isn't this fundamentalism with regards to these? And that's kind of one of the other sticking points on this is um, just to add to why it's so confusing sometimes for people to talk about the evangelical movement is uh, at least as far as it's distinguished from the, uh, from the fundamentalist movement is because for the last about 30 years, they have intertwined with one another. And so you will get massive overlaps uh, of, of people not understanding uh, things with regards to where is it that the charismatic movement, uh, you know, has its boundaries and where is it that the evangelical movement has its boundaries and where is it that the fundamentalist movement has its boundaries? The reality is, and this is what we're going to be dealing with for the next couple of weeks. The reality is we now no longer live in a modern world. We live in a postmodern world and all of these things have all mixed together. And so you will get people that will choose churches not on whether they hold to the virgin birth this or this specific view of scripture that or the historical documents of this or that or whether their stance on modernism or abortion or whatever the case may be. You will get people that decide a church based on some of the most unconnected concepts entirely, whether that is the tempo of the music whether that is the political involvement of the pastor or the lack of political involvement of the pastor or whatever the case may be. All of this comes down to the reality is there really aren't any boundaries anymore between these things. And, and what was a, in the earlier days, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and even, yes, into the 80s, a kind of robust evangelical response to the modern movement, the modernist movement, the reality was that in the 60s and 70s and 80s, the culture itself was rejecting modernism. And so the reality is that the evangelical movement, what it was founded on, what it was founded to respond to, is no longer the massive topic of the day. It would be kind of uh, similar to if you founded an organization uh, in order to defeat, mm, I don't know, let, let's try to find something that's not political or theologically charged. Uh, let's say there was an invasion of uh, wood shrews uh, into uh, your hometown. And so you found an organization in order to fight off wood shrews. Well, wouldn't you know it? The invasion of wood shrews leads to an entirely unconnected to you uh, rise of hawks in the area that take care of the wood shrews. 
uh, all the most of the wood shrews are gone, but you still have your organization of down with the wood shrews, right? That's kind of what we're dealing with. Uh, the whole fundamentalist evangelical movements were were designed to offer a a robust response. Well, excuse me, the evangelical movement was designed to offer a robust response, both in Christian philosophy and in theology and intellectual thought, even in founding multiple seminaries to address this issue that now the culture itself is rejecting and deconstructing modernism itself because of its own failures. And so now that that's the case, when we look at evangelicalism today, it's one of the reasons why we have such a hard time defining what in the world is going on with this movement. I would argue, and this is somebody who grew up in an evangelical church, uh, literally the seminary that I've been attending to uh, for the past seven years is Evangelical Theological Seminary. It's where I'm getting my doctorate from, right? That, that, whole, that whole world is no longer existing, that, that modern world. We are now moving into a postmodern world. Uh, we have been for the past several decades, but as far as for a fully orbed postmodern world, we have fallen into, I would say, about the past 15 years. And so what issues we're facing today uh, are different. We're not dealing with people coming up and saying, you know what, uh, you know, I don't think that Jesus did those miracles. I don't think that Jesus did uh, rise from the dead. I don't think that, no, we're dealing with a whole nother cultural problem, which is people coming up and saying, well, if you want to believe that, that's perfectly fine. You can believe that. If that means something to you, that's great. I don't believe that. This over here that I believe, this means something to me. And 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 this, this relativistic uh, approach, not that postmodernity is just straight up relativism, it's not. Uh, but certain aspects of it certainly do have that, this, this idea of this democratization of all truth. Um, two plus two can equal four, but it can equal something else as well based on, you know, your community, based on your experience. Uh, it's perfectly fine for you to think otherwise, and it wouldn't be right of me to call you wrong. You see what I mean? Uh, and so the evangelical uh, movement itself today is adrift. Uh, whether or not it's going to live on or whether or not it's going to just simply um, fall away. Here's one of the big concerns that I have about it right now. And so now that I'm, you know, let's put all the cards on the table with regards to this kind of stuff. When we see, um, when we see the culture starting to disagree with modernism in its postmodernist tendencies, one of the, one of the tendencies for the church is to join the culture in its rejection of modernity. But the, but the issue with post-modernity is it's not just rejecting modernity, it's a continual ex, uh, rejection also of what modernity rejected, which was pre-modernism, which is where Christianity is found in itself and is that truth is located in God. Um, and so we'll talk all about that here in the coming weeks uh, of, of with regards to a lot of the anti-modernist trends, both in fundamentalism and as also in the evangelical world, uh, those anti-modernist trends uh, have led many in the evangelical world to fully embrace post-modernity uh, with all of its anti-modernist promises. Um, and this is going to present a huge challenge to the church in the coming generations and something that I think we need to be talking a whole lot more about 
Um, and, and, and not to say that we need to answer with more seminaries and more this, uh, or to pull back from society, which there's already been multiple books written about that. And I trust I have been tempted of my own self, uh, pull out of society entirely, let it do its own thing. Um, how do you address these things? How do we deal with them? Well, a lot of it's going to be how influenced are you by these various trajectories? How influenced are you by these uh, various purposes and movements. Um, we're going to be looking into a lot of this starting next week. Uh, postmodern theologies, especially its effect on the evangelical movements um, and on the modern church and how we are to uh, interact with that. Um, strange bedfellows, I will tell you, uh, when it comes to postmodern theologies, I will say that for sure. Uh, if you thought modernism with its, you know, lack of supernaturalism was a problem, you know, just, just wait, just wait for the full embrace of postmodernity and it's kind of promise of heaven on earth within our grasp with no need of God to make it. Um, we will, we will address a lot of that in the coming weeks. Um, I will say a couple of things here. Um, one is, uh, next week we're going to be on no problem. Uh, we will be, uh, we'll be here same time as, as always. And that would be August 9th. Uh, but the week after that and the next week, I'll be gone out of the country, actually, uh, for the for the 16th and for the 23rd. So um, we will have next week's class, and then I'll be off for two weeks. And when we come back, I will wrap up for a couple of weeks here at the end of August, uh, beginning of September, with regards to our chronological walkthrough of church history, postmodernity and uh, kind of a lot of that uh, we're going to talk about some of those movements. Um, and those are really important ones to, to not miss because it kind of goes with where we're going right now in, in church history. Um, but then once we come to, I believe it's the second week of September, uh, we're going to start these deep dives and we're going to kind of change this entire podcast uh, and and class structure uh, to, to envelop uh, a lot of these deep dives. Now, again, um, some of you have contacted me and have given me some requests. I appreciate that. I have them logged away. Um, I have about 30 of these deep dives planned out. Um, if you have something specific in church history that you would like to address, or you would like to have an entire class, like for instance, one of them, uh, we're going to spend an entire night on Lindisfarne, uh, the Holy Island off of the, off of the coast of Britain. Uh, you know, it's history, what happened there. Con, you know, conquest that happened there, uh, the Lindisfarne Gospels, one of the most fantastic, um, uh, interesting manuscripts that come out of what people call the Dark Ages. Um, you know, we'll, we'll just spend like an entire night talking about, you know, that island and things that happened on it. That's kind of what I mean. Uh, or even theological concepts like iconoclasm or, or individual councils like the Council of Florence or Trent or something like this, uh, the Leipzig Disputation. Um, you know, Pope Innocent III, that, that's going to be an incredible night too. That we, you know, this, this type of stuff. So if there's something of real interest to you, if you know me personally, you can text me, you can always email me, you can post uh, comments on, on any of the YouTube videos. Um, you're welcome to do so. And, uh, and we're going to be doing that for the foreseeable future. Um, I don't mean to say that we're never going to go back to a chronological walkthrough, but <clears throat> this chronological walkthrough, I think, is the last one I'm going to do for at least a couple years, uh, and we'll see how the deep dives take us. 
Uh, I am looking forward to that. I know a couple of you have texted me about that and or um, sent me an email. Um, you're looking forward to it too. Uh, so I'm really happy about that. Uh, you know, I mean, when else do you guys are, and I get to sit around and talk about baptism in the early church for an entire hour, hour and a half. So that kind of stuff is fascinating to me. I hope it is to you too. Um, if there's anything I can do, let me know. Other than that, I will see you guys next week, same time, same place. And, uh, and we'll be dealing with postmodern theologies and, uh, and kind of the current state of the church as it, uh, as it looks to the future. So, uh, Lord's blessings to you all. Uh, I look forward to next week and then two weeks off and then back here end of August. Um, Lord's blessings. <laughs>